from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio, it's Monday the 28th. Summer is so close to being over. We got a great show for you today. We're going to do hotel supplies and learn about a whole new industry. Got a cram packed show and we need to get started right now. So that's what we're going to do. Here we go. I'm very excited to introduce another great entrepreneur. Please welcome Andy De Silva to the show. He is the owner of Hotel Emporium. They make some of the great green sustainable products that you might find in the bathroom of the hotel that you go to. He is in 25,000 hotels across the world and operating in, I think, almost 50 different countries. Amazing story. We're going to hear all about it. Andy, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jim. Looking forward to this interview. Tell us the story. Well, first, tell us about the uh, Hotel Emporium now. How many employees? What are you selling? Tell us about the business. Okay, so Hotel Emporium is a 100% family-owned business. Uh, we are, uh, our products are in probably 55-plus countries right now globally. We are uh, we manufacture all the hotel amenities. That's like all the little toiletries to all the dispenser bottles. And um, so we it started in my garage with my uncle, who's a family member of mine. And uh, now uh, we can proudly say we are in all fifty states and again uh, on fifty five countries globally. Amazing! Congratulations. So let's go back to Thank how you, it Jim. got started. What did you and your uncle do? How did the idea come up? Tell us about that. So uh, how the idea came up, I, I, originally I'm from Sri Lanka and my father had a hotel distribution company. So I was kind of born into uh, this business and I migrated to the U.S. in 1998. Prior to that, my uncle in 1992, he was a hotel manager in Newport Beach, California. And the guy who was supplying all the shampoos and the soaps on a Friday, he wouldn't show up. So long story short, my uncle filled the hotel with, uh, he went to Walmart, bought like shampoos and so filled the hotel because hotels cannot run without shampoos and the soaps. And then uh, Monday comes, he found out the, uh, the supplier had a health issue and he wanted to sell this company. My uncle being the entrepreneur he is, he went and bought this little uh, liquid filling uh, factory in Anaheim, California and he started the business. And then he learned the business and uh, after two, three years, because of some operational issues and cash flow issues, uh, he put a pause to it. So when I migrated in 1998, we both are like best friends to date and uh, we both decided to give it a shot. And we worked, uh, I worked in hotels right away when I came to the States. And uh, during that time, we both were like, hey, uh, we really uh, have to get this business up and running. And uh, we started the 
distributing different products like mattresses and sheets and uh, sofas to hotels we used to buy ourselves but our passion was my uncle's passion was in amenities so eventually uh, we decided to dial uh, dial in and 100% focus on all the shampoos and the soaps and uh, we started the company in my garage and uh, both of us then here we are after like uh, you know 20 plus years wow and how did you get your very first customer? So we were in hotels. We had a lot of friends in the industry. So uh, my uncle uh, used to know a lot of people. He's one of the greatest door-to-door salespeople you can ever meet. And uh, so he uh, we, we, he knew like uh, prior when he had the factory before. So uh, he he had this client base. So when we started it, it was just a matter of going to them and introducing our products and. Uh, we got a couple of uh, hotels we have he used to work uh, which is a little hotel in Balboa where the whole story started it's called the Balboa Inn and some hotels in Anaheim and then you know all across Southern California we started selling this product and uh, the next thing we decided to go global and how was that was it hard what, what country did you spend in first and how did you do that First country was actually first was Hawaii. Uh, when I say global, Hawaii is almost, uh, even though it's a U.S. state, it's five and a half hours away. We took a risk and we went there and we put a trade show. And we've, uh, there's a funny story. When we went there uh, in hoteliers, you know, they dress up really nice. So we went in suits and we had this nice booth and we found out nobody wanted to talk to us on the first day because the way we were dressed up, Hawaiians don't dress up in suits, right? So the next thing, we both ran into a Tommy Bahama uh, store down the street, uh, dressed in khaki pants and uh, Tommy Bahama shirts, and we uh, found out how I had a huge issue with the distribution. And uh, because they, uh, the four main islands, they didn't have uh, a proper distribution network, then we uh, linked up with one of the largest uh, distributors who had the uh, warehousing in all four islands, but they were not in this space hotel amenities, and we convinced them to carry our products, and we started there. So having linking with them uh, got us the foot in the door with the, like you know uh, it's a uh, the name of the company is Office Depot Office Max, and then uh, they introduced us to like uh, like you know how the all the logistic piece works. Then uh, how we went global, we partnered up in 2007 or two, no, actually 2008 with a company called American Hotel Register. And they, they had an international division as well called uh, International Hotel Supplies. So we broke into them and uh, they actually put us on the map, to be honest with you. They took us uh, around the world and introduced us to hotels. And unfortunately, that company uh, went under during the pandemic. But... Uh, uh, that put us on the map and then we uh, did our own thing and here we are well andy it's a very impressive story how do you operate now i know you have overseas offices are they just for sales or for distribution how does how does the manufacturing happen and then the distribution all over the world so we have uh, our own manufacturing facilities as well as we do a lot of uh, co-manufacturing uh, with Mexico, China, Malaysia, India, and so on, as well as USA. And uh, we uh, distribute our products through distributors globally. So we, are, we can uh, supply to any country in the world. Okay. And you just you ship those like UPS or something? 
I mean, is it that no, simple? No, ours is mostly our container loads business because shampoo oh, and soap is the product. Okay. Yeah, we ship it all around the world in container loads. And how many different products do you have? Tell us about your normal, uh, like your everyday best-selling product. And also, I know you have an interesting story about how you went green. Tell us those things. How many products do you have? So how many products we uh, have? We probably have about like 50,000 plus items because most of the hotels, they love to customize uh, the products, put their hotel name printed on the bottles and so on. As well as we have a lot of licensed brands such as like Hawaiian Tropic to Ben Sherman and so on. And uh, so... uh, uh, about 50,000 SKUs, but at this time we are diversifying into other products because I feel like the innovation is a key factor in our, our industry. So we, you know, we created innovation lab, we are inventing a new products and, um, mostly inside the hotel rooms, uh, we are actually, uh, innovating uh, like uh, uh, some products in our space uh, custom uh, we call them custom amenities amenity space as well as the other products around the room how we got into the green products this is actually a very funny story uh, in 2004 I, I there was a supplier uh, hotel distributor in new jersey uh, new jersey and i had to go there to do a presentation regarding our products and then uh, being an immigrant, English wasn't my first language, right? Then, um, so uh, during the meeting, I was so confident uh, with the product and I had the knowledge. Then during the meeting, one sales guy goes, Andy, do you have any green products? Right? Uh, being an immigrant, only green thing I knew is the green color, right? So <laughs> <laughs> the next thing I started talking about liquids, green color liquids, green color bottles, green color caps. And then they're like, no, sustainable products. So I'm like, um, I'm not really sure what this is. Then I kept still talking about the green products because I thought that's what it was. <laughs> then, I came out, yeah, then I came out, the guy who was with me from my company, he goes, Andy, uh, do you know what green products means? I'm like, isn't it the green color products? He's like, no. Then he explained it to me. I want to actually dig a hole and never come out. that. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, then um, next day I started like, you know, learning about it, you know, and uh, I'm a quick learner, I think. And uh, the next thing I called back to that customer and apologized and they laughed about it. And then the next thing I uh, started this whole sustainable movement, uh, like, you know, we are trying to get away from most of the plastic products and, uh, you know, the single use uh, toiletries. And uh, uh, so I'm investing a lot of time and money on these products, Jim. What does happen about your little plastic bottles and how, how can you move away from plastic? You must go through billions of those little plastic, tiny things. Uh, yeah. So what happened was uh, a few years ago, uh, California state banned all the little uh, plastic bottles and the tubes and, uh, and single use plastic items for hotels. So from 2023 January, we cannot have them in any of the hotels. And uh, so uh, what we got into was we have a lot of refillable systems. So we give like uh, larger bottles and uh, you can refill the liquids. And uh, we are inventing a lot of products around it. So this way you are not really wasting plastic. And uh, so uh, that's that's what we've been doing. And is that, so you sell both systems now. You sell plastic if I want it and if I'm in a different part of the world, right? 
different part of the world. So, like uh, right as of now, I would say it used to be hundred percent of our business was little uh, b- bottles and the soaps. Now I can say probably eighty percent of it uh, has moved into larger bottles and refillable systems. Was that a difficult transition? It was a huge transition at the beginning because it was uh, uh, it was a hit for our revenue because uh, most of our business was in packaging. But we had to like that's the time we uh, said, "Hey, we have to invent products, and we cannot uh, look at it like you know, oh, this is the business is going to die down." So what we did was we uh, spent some time on uh, innovating products. So that actually took us put us on the map, and um, then the business took off. Actually, that uh, we actually. Uh, grew tremendously last few years when the uh, most of my competition was kind of like you know struggling with this transition so the fact that you solved that transition better than anyone else was a, a real secret sauce for you a, a superpower <laughs> i'm not sure i like there, there are quite a few companies in my space my computers so they are they're doing well as uh, well too but uh, we are actually, uh, our goal is to keep innovating and be one of the leader in the industry. So uh, we are keep innovating these days. How do you get licenses with those brands that you were talking about? Uh, that's very impressive. How do you find the company and get in and get a license with them? So that's a pretty hard one. You have to like, you know, first you got to build your company reputation and then you got to go and pitch it to these companies and uh, licensing companies as well as companies and show them your capabilities. You got to show them. Uh, we have to go through a lot of hoops because uh, uh, they look at the formulations, fragrances, uh, thickness of the liquids, the product longevity and how we place the products. Certain uh, brands don't want any of these products to go less than four four star hotels or three and a half star hotels or whatever, and so um, so you it's a to get a brand it takes a year to two years sometimes to get a good brand uh, license to us because uh, it's a lot of back and forth and it's a uh, it's a it's a pretty tough thing to get. And what's the one that you're the most uh, satisfied with? Which one is the most impressive? You think? Uh, we have quite a few brands. It's not just one, and uh, more like it depends on the region. Uh, for example, like the Caribbean region and the Florida markets and California, they would like Hawaiian topic kind of like a tropical uh, products. And the, there are like places like Dubai, New York, and uh, Chicago, big London. Those cities they like branded products like Patch Dimishka, Ben Sherman, and so on. Then we have our in-house brands as well. There are price-conscious markets. So we have our own in-house brands such as Oxygen, Terra Green. We do really well with those as well. Uh, so it all, all depends across the board. What about Airbnb? Have you? Uh, is that a huge competitor to you in your eyes, or is that an opportunity to sell into there as well? I mean, Airbnb, you know, hosts uh, the, need yes. the same stuff. They need the little shampoo bottles too. Yes, actually, uh, when Airbnb came, I thought hotel industry is going to get a big hit with those guys, but it hasn't actually. Hotels grew, they grew, so these are 
two real nice markets. And we uh, last two years, we've been doing a push for Airbnb, mainly through Amazon and some platforms. So we've created little kits for these uh, uh, little uh, homes and these places, Airbnb uh, hosts. For example, our shampoo case, we might have 200 to 50 to 500 shampoo bottles in a case. For Airbnbs, we've created like two, if it's larger bottles, two to three bottles to 20 small bottles kind of case packs. So uh, we've been pushing it uh, a lot recently. So we've seen an upside to it. But Airbnb is a very difficult market to uh, go into, but uh, we are trying. I'm impressed that you're doing that. And I'm on Amazon now, and I see some of the cool things they have for Airbnb, the Airbnb essentials, uh, and some of the things you're selling there. There's some I see some of your brand. That's pretty cool. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that was smart it. to think of that. So, thank you. How big is your warehouse in California? Our warehouse is about uh, 25,000 square foot uh, because we don't really warehouse a lot of products. We actually uh, sell it through distribution. And how many employees do you have total there? In the, in the U.S., we uh, in, in, in uh, California, we have about uh, 28 employees. Altogether in the U.S., we have about 35 employees, but uh, we have a lot of employees overseas as well. Altogether, probably closer to 150. Very impressive. How do you hire? What are your hiring criteria? What do you look for when you're hiring somebody? It depends on the position, obviously. You know, uh, we try to, uh, my preference would be somebody who understands the industry because uh, even though uh, hotels, people think it's easy, hotels is a unique market because uh, sometimes when you do a sale or part of the whole sales process, it's uh, once once you know the industry, it's easy to uh, talk that language. You know, like for example, my product is called amenities, right? So a person who works for a hotel or in that industry, they would know what it is. So there's a lot of learning curve if you hire outside the industry, especially in the sales and marketing space. Um, but we try to, but we found people, uh, you know. Um, uh, mostly through word of mouth. That's that's uh, how I get most of my staff. All right, perfect. What are some of your thoughts on entrepreneurship, Andy? Uh, what are some of the lessons you've learned as a business person? Uh, you know, when someone asks me that question, one of the things I first things that comes to my mind is I hate that book. The four hour work week, because I just don't think that that's a realistic standard for uh, us entrepreneurs. What are your yeah. thoughts when I say, talk about entrepreneurship? The entrepreneurship, I believe it's not for everybody, right? You have to have the passion and you have to know, like, you know, you're, it's like bringing up a child. It doesn't matter which direction you go, whatever you do as an entrepreneur, you got to really believe in it. And, uh, make sure you put the time into it. I tell people, uh, in my eyes, time is the most valuable thing we have. Some people say health, absolutely, but most of the health-related issues could be reversible, but the time, you never get it back, right? So when you become an entrepreneur, managing time and uh, having the passion are the two most important things, in my eyes at least. So uh, 
uh, you got to believe in what you do. You have to uh, say all the naysayers. You got to tell them, no, I'm going to do it and just, you know, let them laugh at you because at the end of the day, if you put your time and 100% effort into it, eventually, I believe in uh, certain people started the businesses and within a matter of months to years, they become super successful. Some t people have to grind it for a few years to 10 years maybe or whatever the time. Then your time is going to come. It involves a little bit of luck too uh, to identify the products or the service you are getting into. But I believe if you manage your time and you give it all, uh, as long as you have it in you to be an entrepreneur, I think eventually it will succeed. Great advice. And uh, I agree with your sentiments. So is your goal to, is your dream to have this business transfer to other generations or your family, your children, perhaps to run the business forever? Absolutely. So my uncle is the chairman of the company and I'm the co-founder and I'm the CEO. So we have five cousins working with us already. So this is a hundred percent family business. We actually uh, want to uh, leave it for the next generations as well as some of our our employees as well we want them to like you know not because uh, be a part of it because i believe we spend more time at work more than we uh, uh, spend with our family members the loved ones because we are here at least three to five days a week like you know we are talking and we are spending time with the employees so they become our extended family so I believe creating that work culture and taking care of them is as important as our family members who are in the business. So I'm, uh, we are setting ourselves up to like uh, have a generation of family business as well as like employees needs to get benefited from as well. And what advice would you give to them or how would you tell them to resolve conflict when they don't agree with each other? So that's one of the challenges I have sometimes having uh, family members uh, in a company. But the thing is, uh, as long as we are disagreeing on a, uh, I, I love disagreements as long as it's productive, right? So being a leader, you got to make sure those conversations, disagreements, stay focused towards something productive and positive at the end of the day, right? So because sometimes people's egos experience and attitudes all this come into play sometimes so being the ceo i got to navigate it through looking at the big picture and the end goal hey these disagreements as long as it's uh, within the parameters right it's great because that's when like if you don't have disagreements i i don't feel like so like everybody's giving it 100 percent because there are some people when they're passionate about stuff that's when they give the ideas and stuff. I make sure I listen to all of them as much as I can and, you know, try to get the best out of everybody. And at the end, hey, when we, like, you know, when we, something good, either we win an account or we develop a beautiful product, at the end we all win, you know. So uh, that's the attitude I have for disagreements. I tell them sometimes after they disagree with each other, I'll make a joke out of it. And I'm like, I'll make sure... You know, the, the, nobody takes it personal. What trends do you see in the hotel industry? Where where do you think the hotel industry is going? Are, are sales increasing and you're selling more product because people are traveling more? Uh, what trends and 
overall hotel industry-wide things are you observing? So hotels, actually, there are lots of hotels building all around the world. Hotel market is growing uh, tremendously. And also the sustainability is huge in hotels right now. So uh, all aspects of the hotels, just like any other industry, sustainability movement is uh, uh, happening. And also uh, lots of people are traveling after the pandemic. Most of the hotels are having like, record numbers in their revenues and sales forecasts and stuff. So the innovation is going to be a massive, massive, massive thing uh, for hotels moving forward as well. Very interesting. Andy, congratulations on a great business and a great family achievement. Uh, how do you want people to find out more about you? Follow you online, all that, please. Yes, I mean, follow us online. We are going through a digital transformation. We are actually just through people like you. We are getting a lot of exposure these days. And uh, so uh, our website and our Facebook, Instagram, all the social media outlets, if people can follow us, that would be great. Fantastic. Andy, congratulations on a fantastic business and a great run. Thank you for being here with us and uh, hope you'll come back again. Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being patient with me. And we'll be right back. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us. I'm very excited to introduce my next guest. It's all not only a new guest, but a whole new industry, a whole new thing, a whole new basket of skills for us to look about. And I'm ashamed to say, I, I know almost nothing about what our next guest does. Please welcome Chris Holsher to the show. He is available at holsher.one, and that's H-O-L-S-C-H-E-R. And he is calling in from Germany. He is one of the world's premier industry analyst relations guys. It's known as IAR. He used to do this for the huge Fortune 500 companies. And what is so awesome is that he has taken his skills in industry analysis and has turned it toward small businesses. And now on his website, he is working with small businesses, taking his 20 years of B2B experience and using that to help small businesses understand their industries. He is author of state of startups with industry analyst, uh, a report. We will ask him about it. Chris, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Just returning from a three-week summer vacation, so it couldn't be any better. Fully recharged now. <laughs> you Europeans really do enjoy your summer. I mean, you take almost all of August off, don't you? I tell you, yes, we um, we do. But uh, to be honest, this is the first time for me in a couple of years to take a longer vacation uh, because I've uh, you know moved from uh, being an employee at a large company to running my own business a handful of years ago. So this was actually the first that I could even take a long time off, and I truly enjoyed it. Yes, entrepreneurs are in a different bucket all the time. So explain indeed, indeed. what you do, Chris. What what is industry analyst relations? Well, sure. Um, so, industry analyst relations is um, a profession that um, helps um, 
B2B tech organizations, companies to liaise and use the powers of industry analysts. What industry analysts are doing is um, the world of tech has become so complex and so fast moving that buyers, but also investors, um, really need deep expertise to base their decisions on. So it's, it's become far too complex. So that's what they use industry analysts for. And those guys do nothing else but look into a specific segment of business to business technology or a specific geography and so forth. Um, to analyze this day in, day out. They know every vendor, they know every offering, they know every deal, um, and they they know what works and what hasn't and, and why that is. And uh, they write reports about it. You can book inquiries with them and learn all about that. And, of course, with all that um, deep insight, uh, which they need to apply uh, completely independently and, and uh, unvarnished, if you will, uh, because that's their whole value proposition. With all that insight, they're becoming extremely important also for the vendor side. Um, because um, they, I mean, research has shown that uh, industry analysts are the first and the last to be called into the room if a vendor, uh, sorry, if a buyer wants to make a technology decision. Um, so they, they asked industry analysts, what, who should we consider? Um, how should we design our technology strategy? Who, do, who should we talk to? Why? Who's fitting with us? So they're extremely influential on that path. And with that influence, they're becoming uh, important to the vendors as well. So vendors want them to understand um, their portfolio, their capabilities, um, their priorities, and uh, what they're after, what they're not after. And that's what I help uh, companies do. And um, as you said, in my earlier life, I did this for very large companies for um, more than a decade, quite successfully, and then switched to the bright side and now help um, startups and scale-ups understand this critical, critical part of the playing field and, um, yeah, and, and uh, move more successfully and faster. That's what I do. All right. Can you give us an example of one of the projects that you work on and what is the end result? What is the data package at the end, the report look like at the end? Walk us through one, would you? Yeah. Yeah, there is um, a, a very simple one would be that I help um, a startup, first of all, understand and identify um, which are the most relevant industry analysts in their field, or if there are any, and, and uh, what kind of reports are issued in, in their field, so, um, uh, so that they know the playing field. And then we um, try to get this startup um, an introductory briefing with the um, top relevant analysts in, in that space so that they can explain their idea, they can explain their business, they can explain how far they got, what their strategy is, where they're going, what their target uh, customers is, and so on and so forth, and um, get um, a little bit of feedback from the analysts. And that could be, well, thank you very much. Um, don't call us, we call you. And that means the startup has a problem because obviously they're not relevant to that analyst's uh, field of research. Or the feedback could be um, lots of questions and um, can we please stay in touch? And that means a very sure product market fit. And it means that startup now really gotten on the radar of this um, industry analyst firm and this particular uh, analyst person. And from there on, they can deepen the relationship and uh, work their way um, up in the um, in the you know consciousness of that analyst and hopefully have the analyst write about them, mention them in their reports and, and thus uh, strengthen their positioning in the market and, and so on. 
So um, that would be typically a, a project of round about three to four months um, that I work through with, with a startup. Um, and the result would be, um, well, first of all, qualified product market fit and qualified who are the most influential analysts in their field, the reports and the, um, and the activities, and Chris, getting them on the radar. Let me interrupt you yeah. for a second. When you say analyst, I hate to be so stupid, but are you saying like the Morgan Stanley Goldman Sachs analyst in charge of the solar energy sector analyst? Is that what you mean? I mean the likes of Gartner, um, Forrester, IBC. Those are the um, the large um, industry analysts. They um, qu uh, quantify and qualify markets, but also individual vendors and their capabilities. So it's not financial analysts, but actually industry and okay. technology analysts. All right, and so I I have a solar switch that makes solar panels uh, more productive by fifty percent. And I want to hire you, okay? What do what do you go? I would. I'm not sure that your solar switch would be relevant to industry analysts because it's okay. not um, not a um, business to business product. Just well, it could be um, like a yeah, it could be a firewall. It could be in um, um, an uh, industrial IoT platform. It could be a security service. Um, you know, a piece of software uh, that is used in the B2B enterprise uh, field, like a CRM system or so, anything business-to-business -business technology. Okay. All right. And then what would you want the analyst at Gardner to, to know or say about my new firewall company? I just, well, is it media relations? Is it that simple? Is it, we cut it all down? Is it all about just me getting known better? Um, no, that's that's a really important point. So there's a, um, uh, an important distinction between something like media relations or public relations and industry analyst relations. Although it sounds somewhat um, uh, familiar, it's a different thing. So while um, PR and media relations is mostly a one-way street of uh, the vendor informing a journalist or um, a, a publication about what you know their what their latest development and their what they want the, the journalist to, to write about them. Um, industry analyst relations is a two-way street. So we want to inform them, um, but we need to do that extremely factual because they can only um, base their recommendations and their, their writing on, on uh, hard facts. So we cannot do marketing language or sales language there. It has to be an entirely different kind of conversation and information for them. And the the, uh, the back uh, street there is that the analyst um, gives information back to the vendor. So they will give them feedback. They will uh, be available for inquiries about the market, about um, their positioning, their branding, their, uh, their strategy and all that. So it's a two-way street and thereby an entirely different game. Also... Um, while a PR firm is basically there to, you know, you're paying the PR firm to, to celebrate your brand. And the industry analyst is mostly paid by the buyer side to protect them from, let's say, overly confident marketing, if you know what I mean. So um, those are really two very different value propositions. And, um, and because of that, um, industry analysts are so much more influential than the typical marketing agency or PR firm. 
<laughs> yes. All right. How much is a typical engagement and how long would it run for? Um, well, with me, uh, the, the kickoff engagement is something like three months, but it also could be uh, four or five months. I don't care. I do that as a fixed price engagement because um, it's, um, uh, the duration doesn't necessarily impact my amount of work. Sometimes more, it's sometimes harder for the for the vendor to uh, really get their story straight, and I help them with that. So I do that as a fixed price engagement. But from there on, it's kind of a never ending story because you, um, um, you know, it's like you 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 do accounting. You cannot do accounting once and then that's it. You have to do it continuously. Um, and the same thing with, with analyst relations. The world keeps turning. New propositions are being launched into the market. Um, you know, you're, you're having new successes with your clients. You want the world to know about them. Um, you want to qualify new propositions, new market segments and all that. So you do this on a continuous basis. And you, you strengthen that uh, over time. So um, operations like or organizations like Oracle have a team of like 80, of eight zero. Um, analyst relations professionals doing nothing else but making sure the analyst community understands everything that Oracle does in all their portfolio um, inside out and gets back the value into their wheelhouse as well to help new product development, help you go to market and all that. With a small organization like a startup, so you'll have one analyst professional, someone like myself, or you might even have an internal um, person who can do this, and I assist them then, I guide them, I, I help them. And, um, but you do that on a continuous basis. All right. Makes sense. I get it now. As I said, this is an industry, a whole space that I just wasn't aware of. And so, yeah, a few people really are. It's, it's kind of a best hidden secret. And the, um, what's interesting is that, uh, if you look at startups, uh, we all know that some 50% of startups die within the first four years or so, right. you know, give and take. Um, but what research has found is that uh, B2B tech startups that have scored a mention on an industry analyst um, report, like a Gartner Cool Vendor report or so, um, they suddenly turn that death rate into an 80% survive and thrive rate. So that's pretty impressive. And not just after four, but five years. And, um, you know, many of these with lucrative investment deals afterwards. So that's a, it's a real game changer, and that's the reason why analysts for uh, sorry um, venture capital firms like um, Andreas Horowitz or Sapphire Ventures or Sierra Ventures and so on, they all recommend um, to tech startups to start analyst relations as early as they can and practice it strategically. It's not a transactional engagement; it's a very strategic engagement. It has value throughout the business in many many different ways. And uh, that's why that's so recommended. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're in the tech B2B space, you have to play for that space. And so that makes sense. Is most of your work in software or hardware? What What is 80% of your work in or... The, best, <laughs> the two biggest sectors, so to speak. I wish I wish I could say that, but I have such diverse clients. I have clients in the industrial IoT space, in the HR space, in uh, digital transformation, in the government sector, in 
you know, across the board, I, there's like zero um, uh, commonalities between the, the companies that I work with. Um, and that's a good thing because um, what I do um, needs to be kind of independent from these sectors. It helps me to question their value propositions, question their uh, strategies, their visions, their missions, their business development plans, and all their companies set up so, um, it, and, and bring out uh, the best in them um, in a way that makes sense to the analyst community because you need to speak a different kind of language there. You have to be extremely factual. You have to be extremely precise with your language. So a strategy is not the same thing as a plan, you know, um, and these kind of things. So um, the diversity of my clients really helps me in, in, you know, being excellent at what I do in the illustration space. What's the difference between a strategy and a plan? <laughs> well, um, a plan is, is something um, where you have, um, you have some level of certainty um, of what you want to, to, to do. You're planning your, your actions, and it's a, typically it's a finite thing. Um, whereas a strategy is um, something you're making an educated bet on your market. You have a lot of uh, data and insight collected and behaviors observed in the market. And bringing all this together, you're making an educated bet on where the world is going to be in a handful of years. And then you're um, taking a couple of um, decisions to position yourself in a way that allows you to play absolute best to that future scenario. So that is your strategizing. Now, um, um, you're basically positioning your, your company to win this bet. Now, there is a, which means there is a great deal of uncertainty um, you know, involved in, in this. Whereas a plan would then be something to say, okay, so if that is my, um, how I want the, uh, the company to look like, I can now plan actions to, um, to help the company get there. So that's a different, two different things. One is making an educated guess and the other and, and you know, deriving uh, positioning from it. And the other is putting it into action. Very well described. <laughs> well, that's what I do. <laughs> Are you seeing a slowdown in the tech space uh, continue or is it picking up? Uh, I think that the tech industry is in a recession. The rest of us, the rest of the economy is not. What are your thoughts on the overall tech industry, financial, fiscal health? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a really turbulent time at the moment. And um, the, the, the interesting thing on, from my perspective is that the demand for the services that I offer is, is growing in this difficult time because industry analysts, and I'm not trying to sell this here, but it's just a reality, um, are the ones who are being inquired with, you know, on, on technology decisions or, or market decisions or uh, new concepts, methodologies, and so on and so forth, by the ones who either need to make decisions despite of a recession or who want to take advantage of the recession um, or you know, it's 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 either all. Um, 
or they, they, they cannot not make a decision. They're forced to make a decision. So this demand is rather growing in these kinds of times than, um, than slowing down. Um, at the same time, I see um, a really interesting theme from the analyst community saying, you know, in, in this time, if you, if you want to do something useful now, and it's not client work because clients are maybe not responding at the moment, um, then try to reduce friction from everything you're doing within your business, be it client processes, be it internal processes, whatever, because friction is frustrating people. And people are becoming the absolute number one resource these days. There's a, a really bad talent crunch at the moment. And, um, and this is the very best thing that you can do because you're keeping your best people, you're making life easier, you're taking out costs, and you're making it, uh, you're reducing frustrations for your clients, for your partners, for your people. And that's the very best thing that you can do. So that's a really interesting observation that I see, frequently see. In, in my space at the moment. What do you think about uh, America right now? As a <laughs> European, what do you think about what's going on in America right now? You Give us an outside funny. view. You know how bald people <laughs> have to have a mirror to know that they're bald. Give us a mirror to look at ourselves with. It's um, you know, for for a while we looked at what's going on in the in the U.S. as oh, that's funny and entertaining. Um, looking at politics, then uh, there came a time when we when we thought, so well, it's, it's not that funny anymore. It's it's kind of getting getting crazy and and hard to believe this is real. And um, well, and then, now there is a quite a bit of concern over you know where where the you know, this this largest country in the world is is is, is heading. Um, at the same time, um, I I'm deeply impressed with how your society is you know is dealing with the situation with all the difficulties that are that are going on, and um, and and it's. And I'm just glad I'm not in that same situation. Um, uh, taking, you know, society in pol or politics aside, um, I, I do a lot of, I, I'm a lot in Scandinavia. And Scandinavia is an incredibly modern and successful society. It's, it's uh, very market orientated. It's very, um, you know, social orientated um, in terms of uh, society taking care of each other. Uh, it's a, a fascinating mix of 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 this, it's, it's, which, and I consider it a very very modern. And sometimes, if I then look over at the United States and I see what you're paying for prescription drugs, or what kind of social welfare system you have, or even the educational system, which is has enormous strengths on the you know on the research side, and uh, when it comes to top notch. Um, um, education at the at, at the top end, um, but is comparably weak on, in the you know in, in the middle and in the broad for the broader part of society. Um, I feel like the U.S. needs to kind of follow some of the best practices that are out there in the world to to keep its relevance, um, which is which is a harsh thing to say, but. Um, 
but then on you know you have the brains and and the and the uh, and the people and and the and the resources to to actually make such a transition but it's getting really urgent i think so that's a the you know no filter view yes you were asking earlier where i live and where i'm from I'm from the city that just indicted the state that just indicted Trump uh, 12 hours ago. So you listeners will see how far we pre-recorded this. Uh, Trump just got indicted in Georgia yesterday. So this is about a, a week or two before two weeks prior to airing. And Chris, uh, that's where I live. So the entire city feels like we're about to get attacked, you know, with the circus <laughs> that's going to happen here. They've put up barriers around all of our federal buildings downtown, um, you know, to per, you know protect against a riot or something. So, uh, yeah, it's good good to be good to be prepared. But um, on the other hand, if you look at the at the previous indictment, nothing really happened. So um, yeah, I I I just hope that um, it's it's all getting back to you know reality and um, yeah, and that uh, you know you can delete that episode from from your day to day lives um, soon and and concentrate back on on what actually matters. Yes. Yes. What's the the coolest industry? Give uh, an industry analysis of AI, would you please? Uh, <laughs> certainly, the coolness right now is in the AI world. So, if I were to hire you to help me in the AI space, what would your first paragraph say? Huh. Well, my first, my my thought is AI is not the hottest ticket in town. Well, I think AI is well, yeah, it's interested, but interesting. But it's a um, it's a technology, and you can apply it, and that's fine. Um, but what I find really, really exciting at the moment is um, something that sounds as dry as process optimization, and the reason for that is there's so much innovation out there in the world right now, um, and things like artificial intelligence, and and other kinds of innovation, and even compound innovation, meaning one bit of innovation building and leveraging, you know, on top of another, um, getting even, you know, more impactful and more crazy. The thing is, all of these require good, optimized, you know, smooth, as I say, frictionless processes underneath, because otherwise you apply your artificial intelligence to something you know that isn't properly working, and uh, with that you're just kind of automating or artificially you know enhancing something that's broken, and and it doesn't work. So where I see some really fundamental, large impact progresses being made is true process optimization, and. Um, and there's also a massive um, change going on in that industry because um, in the past, uh, you know, process consulting had not the best uh, reputation. Projects took forever. 
cost you know twice or three times what they were advertised, didn't deliver what they promised, and, um, and the consultancies you know made a whole lot of money on it. Um, there is a new breed of consultancies um, stepping into the world these days. Um, I'm, I'm personally working with a with a small consultancy in the UK called Pace, um, who uh, Pace-XL if dot com if you want to look them up. Um, they are um, they're bringing a new type of uh, process consultancy into the world that's looking at understanding um, the end-to-end overall business um, uh, you know, process first before looking into the individual steps. And um, their approach makes it, it makes a huge difference on um, speeding up process, you know, the process of optimizing by at least 50%, if not more, you know, um, truly delivering on the promises. It's absolutely f- amazing, uh, these results in that space. And again, it is something that is so fundamental that it has um, a vital impact on all these technologies that are out there um, and, and so much more you know, effect um, on, on the actual businesses without all the hype. You know, it's, it's, um, it's something very um, effective, not glittery. Chris, how do we find out more? Follow you online, connect. Well, the, um, the, the best thing is um, to uh, hop over to my website, which is um, www.holter.one, so that's H-O-L-S-C-E-R.O-N-E. Um, you can also, of course, find me on LinkedIn, where I, you, know, you can find me as uh, Chris Holter. That's probably the best thing. Um, I'm not, not really using uh, Twitter or X these days anymore. Um, it's just gone too crazy for me. It certainly has. It certainly has. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. Great stuff and really appreciate the education. Well, lovely to be with you. And um, I hope your, your listeners take something away. I'm sure they will. We all learned quite a bit. So we appreciate it very much. Thank you, sir. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. We are out of time, but we are back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Go make a million dollars. Bye now.